Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Today we are going to go on a lineage digression, you could say. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be talking about uh, data provenance, which I I don't know what that is, uh, but you're going to explain it probably. (laughs) Well, and also called data lineage. That's important for the pun. (laughs) Now everyone gets the pun. Uh, You are listening to Lineage Digression. Oh goodness, that linear, was a pretty linear, good one. Linear digressions. What I don't know what came into what came over me. Uh, who can say? Yeah, data provenance. This is an interesting topic uh, and one that's near and dear to my heart. It's not something that people think about a little bit until they get into trouble and they're like, oh no. Uh, <laughs> but it's yeah. I um, also learned a word today. Provenance is the history or of ownership of a valued object or work of art or literature. But in this case, it's not a valued object or work of art or literature, it's uh, data. Yeah, so this is a general idea of where does data come from and what are the different forms that data can take and the relationship between those forms. And we'll talk a little bit about why this is something that you might care about. Um, but just speaking conceptually here for a moment, this makes sense from a lot of perspectives, right? Because very often you're doing machine learning on data that is pretty recent. Like maybe you have people who watch movies on Netflix every night and then Netflix is taking in those new, uh, that new data about people who've watched movies and it's producing new recommendations based on them or whatever. So- Quick turnaround. Yes. (laughs) So in general, you can think of a lot of versions of this, but the idea is that the world is changing constantly, right? And data is just information that's kind of snapshotted about the world. So as the world changes, you have your data is in many cases going to be updating. Your data is changing along with it. That means that the predictions that you might be making based off of your machine learning algorithms or the conclusions that you're drawing from your data set will be changing as well. And so in order to understand the relationship between, say, the predictions that you're making or the measurements that you're making and the underlying data that it's based off of, understanding that relationship can be pretty important for making sure that the results you're getting out are reproducible, that they're making sense. So this is actually a pretty important problem if you have stuff that's actually deployed to production is keeping track of the data that went into making that stuff. Right. This this almost seems like what uh, software engineers would recognize as version control. It's the history of the code that you write. Yeah, totally. And so there's really good tools for software versioning. Namely, I'm thinking of Git, but then there's also things like SVN and Bitbucket. But I think around data provenance, data lineage, it might be a little bit, it it might be fair to say that it's a little bit harder to do this for data. Uh, Or maybe the other way to say this is that it's not quite as developed for data because it's been maybe obvious for a while that you want something like this for for code, but less obvious that you need it for data. But that having been said, uh, there's a lot of context in which there's pretty mature data lineage operations. And so we can talk about those a little bit as well. Yeah. One, one thought on that actually is the reason that version control makes a lot of sense with software is that usually if you go from uh, the stuff that, that the state of the world in my code base today versus tomorrow, right? The differences are not going to be huge necessarily, right? Typically, you're just going to have a couple small places that are changing. And so the the actual data that you're tracking, you're not tracking an entire copy of your code base for every change. You're only co- keeping track of the diffs or the, the changes. 
But with data, I could imagine that things could change in a much larger way from day to day if you change your data structure uh, and maybe the change, the actual changes that occur are harder to track. Um, I don't know. That's just kind of a my pontificating on it, not knowing. Yeah, I mean, the maybe the right way to think about this, or I think a useful place to start, is that understanding the lineage of a data set basically has two key components as I think about it. Number one is what was the original source of the data? If you go all the way back, like what sensor did it come from? What website did you download it from on mm. what day? Like, I don't know, where, where did the data come from in its most original form? And then what were the series of transformations that you did on that data to get it to its current state? And so for something like machine learning, things that are fairly typical for this might be things like you're cleaning the data set, like removing outliers or something. Maybe there's additions or subtractions that you're making to the data set, like you're merging different data sets together or you're parsing them apart somehow. Uh, maybe you're aggregating the data up to a higher level maybe you're imputing missing values, maybe these things are happening multiple times and the sequence then matters a lot or the order in which these things are happening is, is a big part of the, of the lineage of the data set. So to get from the beginning to sort of any point along that path requires knowing what the original data set was and then again, the series of transformations that you're talking about here. Oh, got it. Okay, and in a version control system like Git, the actual transformations that are done are not actually the things, strictly speaking, that you're recording. Git kind of tries to infer what the transformations were. And maybe that's the difference, is that while Git does not require you to say specifically what you did to the code, um, and, and it provides a couple tools to do so if you're like moving files or something like that, a version control system of sorts for data requires you to be a little bit more explicit in what the transformations were that you did on the data set and then it can track those specific operations since those happen pretty much across the entire data set or across large portions of the data set. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple ways in practice that people think about this. Um, so two different representations of data lineage can be either focused on the data itself or it can be more focused on the process through which the data goes. So the way that I just described it is nice. a little bit more the process-oriented one. So what are all the transformations that I made? And you, you imagine is kind of like a, a directed acyclic graph of all the different transformations that you do in their order. But there's also a, a version of data versioning where, for example, a simple version of this could be just taking snapshots of the data and storing them, say, to a database every night. And so then you need to be able to go back and find them, and you might want to try them to specific times that you ran code on that data and that sort of thing. But that's another more data-centric way of thinking about it is, you mm. know, maybe not obsessing over the transformations that it underwent or trying to understand them necessarily, but just taking pictures of the results instead. So it's two different ways of looking at the same picture. Um, and depending on exactly kind of what the use case is, one or the other of those might make more sense. Um, but those are both different ways that you can do it. That's really neat. The, um, the second way you described is pretty much just get or version backups, one or the other. And the first one feels almost like you've got these, these um, 
pure functional transformations that you're running across your uh, on your data set and you're you're keeping track of those specific transformations that's kind of cool so what are the systems that actually exist for this like are there specific systems or are people kind of uh building their own yeah so the place where i think that this is most developed is in large scientific collaborations um, in fact, this is something that I first learned about when I worked at CERN uh, a while back because CERN, they have many, many uh, data sets that they collect, that they maintain, and that exist in different levels of like processing. So there's the data that is a little bit more raw, a little bit more straight out of the detector, and then there's kind of the the more uh, reconstructed data, we used to say, uh, stuff that had been like processed more heavily, and there are several different pieces in between. So there's a, this very complex web of not just all the data sets, but the way they relate to each other. And so that's an example from high energy physics, but there's also similar stuff like this from uh, genomics, from biology, from uh, astronomy, from chemistry. Um, so that's in the scientific field, like sort of the international collaborative scientific field. That's a place that's, that's pretty mature. And then somewhat less mature, as far as I can tell, although maybe I'm just not Googling for the right things, uh, there are systems that are a little bit more for the business use case. And there's a good business use case that you could make for this kind of thing too. So for example, here, here sort of all the different reasons that you might want to do this, right? Because at this point, you might be sitting here and saying like, this sounds really nice, but also kind of expensive. Why would I want to do this? So just to enumerate it, and it, this might make it clear why a business might care. So the first is you keep track of data provenance to keep track of the data quality. It's a way of knowing that the data that you have is high quality because you can trace it back to its original source and you can tell all the things that happened to it in the intermediate state. This is a way of basically validating that you're not putting garbage data into your machine learning algorithms or into your metrics calculations or whatever. That this is very like important a, for uh, yeah. science. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a, a really important um, use case, the being able to validate that what you have is actually what you think you have. Totally. Yeah. Uh, second is to produce an audit trail. So if this data is going to be used to make important decisions and people really care about those decisions being right. If something goes wrong, you want to be able to go back and say something like, well, if it went wrong, it wasn't on our end because this is how the data came in and this is all the things that we did. And so we're on the up and up or, you know, whatever the case might be, keeping track of everything that happens to a data set as it's being processed can be useful for sort of auditing purposes. Right. So like a, a different doing validation for a different reason. Right, right. Uh, the third reason is replication. And this is one that I've thought about a lot in other contexts. So if you're a data scientist, there might be something that's kind of familiar to you, which is that you have a model that you build. And so you've written some code that's got like your machine learning stuff, and maybe it's got a little bit of like feature transformations and whatever. You build a model. Uh, Maybe you remember this being a pretty good model or you stuck it somewhere and you're like, okay, now I got my model sorted out. And then some point later, you go back and you retrain the model, maybe not thinking about it. So now you've kind of lost the old one. Let's say you've overwritten it or something. And the new one has some problem or it's something that you mm. don't understand. And you're like, boy, I would really like to get back to the old one that I had. Uh, but I don't moment. know where the data was. 
you know, <laughs> maybe I threw it out, maybe I just lost it. Um, so being able to backtrack to an earlier state of a model is really only possible if you can resurrect the data that was used to train that earlier version. This almost feels like that the, the data scientist version of that moment when you have the important document open and you accidentally delete something and you hit save or word <laughs> crashes and, yeah, and then and you can't get it back. And, and you're like, I spent, I spent a lot of time on this or like, I don't know how to get this back or how to reconstruct this or. Yeah, that's right. And there's replication is also important from a, you know, a scientific perspective as well. Um, so being able to pass results from one group to another and knowing that the other group is going to be able to reliably reproduce them means that very often, you know, scientists or, or mm -hmm. colleagues at a company or whatever can share code, but being able to share information about the underlying data, again, is going to be key to being able to replicate one another's results. This, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess I always thought of the code as being the important thing, because that's the thing that you're pouring all of your effort into as a software engineer, which is what I do every day. Um, I don't think about the data that my code works with, if I mutate something, I, I don't necessarily think like, uh oh, I, I hope I didn't, you know, what if I mess it up or something, because there are just tools that just work that I can, I can undo whatever I did, because we have data provenance built into our systems and, and um, uh, backups and safety nets and all of that stuff, uh, where I work. But it makes sense that if you're coming at it from a data science perspective, the I mean, the code is obviously important, but the data is also really important. And you need to make sure that 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 is what you think it is. Yeah. I mean, I would even argue that data is probably more important, more important than, than code even. Yeah. Mm. Um, so the fourth reason that you might want data provenance is for attribution. Uh, so let's imagine a scenario in which this is maybe something that researchers care about more you have researcher A and they spend a lot of time and effort to collect a data set and then out of altruism or because it's in their own best interest or whatever, they decide to make this data set available to other people so that they can do more science on it. But the person who originally collected the data set would like to be, say, given a, um, a citation on the paper, which is totally reasonable. Well, if you're the researcher who this data set has been passed from person to person to person, and you're five steps removed from the person who created it in the first place, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to have lost track somewhere of the person who created it, and then you can't uh, provide the proper attribution. So that's probably something that you don't want as the end researcher, and that's definitely something that you don't want as the person who put all that effort into collecting it in the first place. So if you can keep track of that handoff process that happened in the middle, then there's a much better chance that the data attribution will actually function properly. And then last is informational as a way of keeping track of all the data that you have and just being able to kind of navigate a data system. So this is probably something that's closest to how I used to use it at CERN. So let me walk you through the way this, this used to work on the LHC, at least at the time that I worked there, which was you know maybe like five years ago or so now. Um, so the thing that we would do pretty typically is work with data sets that were pretty um, processed. So you can imagine that there's a data set that comes straight out of the detector. So that's 
uh, like one or two steps removed from just like raw electrical signals and a bunch of sensors because um, it's this big uh, underground sort of uh, particle detector. The first thing that you have to do is you take that raw data and then you start trying to do things like clean away some of the noise, you scrub out outliers, you do some simple like data cleaning steps on it, and then you have something that's a little bit, little bit better. Then you take that and you start to pass it through some of the, uh, the physics algorithms then that actually try to reconstruct the paths of particles. So this might be things like saying, oh, we saw all these signals that were next to each other sort of in space. We think that there was a particle that hit here. And moreover, maybe here are some of the characteristics of that particle, like here was its momentum, here was what we think its charge was, here was the energy that it, we think it had, that kind of stuff. Yeah, or and here's these are the probably, trajectory, yeah. These are things that you actually care about when you're doing science. You care about, uh, yeah, things like, was there a hit here? And then if there was a hit here and there was a hit in the adjacent layer, then that's a good sign that there was a particle. Mm. Um, so first is identifying the hits. The second is reconstructing them into the trajectory of a particle. Then there's usually a step in which you try to identify what particle it was. So different particles make different signatures in the detector. And you have like pretty sophisticated algorithms that are trying to do that tagging. Um, and then for reasons that are kind of intricate and have to do with physics, very often the particles that you're interested in, you don't see directly in the detector. Instead, you see the particles that they decay to. So for example, my PhD thesis was using uh, things called B quarks. And a B quark is just a certain type of particle, but one of the things that's characteristic of it is you never measure it directly. It decays very, very quickly, and then you measure all the, the spray of particles that come out when it decays. So you're not really interested in like all those particles that hit the detector. You're interested in trying to guess what the particle was that created them. So there's this kind of imaginary object that we call, I mean, it's not imaginary, it existed. It was a B quark. But it's even still one level uh, beyond like, oh, here are the particles that I measured in the detector. You have to kind of reverse engineer what caused those in the first place. So as you can tell, we're getting kind of like more and more abstract, more and more high level. And that whole process of like cleaning and reconstruction happens in several different stages. And so I'm usually only interested in the last stage of that. Uh, looking, trying to look at this data set for physics objects and to try to figure out what the particles were. I'm going to pause here until this ambulance goes by. And now, through the magic of editing, uh, the ambulance oh, is instantaneously dis- <laughs> I know. Uh, and you just silenced just like that, that ambulance. It was gone. Um, anyway, um, forgive me, I'm going to slightly repeat myself here for the, the sake of regaining my train of thought. Um, so I, as a physicist, would very often work with, like, the version of the data set that was talking about, like, B quarks, which, we, as we just said, are kind of constructs. Mm-hmm. Some of my colleagues would go one level earlier if they're trying to understand how to identify B quarks in the first place. You might have to have a version of the data that has that, those sprays of the resulting mm-hmm. particles in them, or, like, the hits that make up those resulting particles so you can kind of study that reconstruction process. But then being able to check that, for example, improvements that you make to the reconstruction process then propagate through to better results for the end user 
being able to navigate those chains of data sets is really important. And then I That's guess just really like cool. one more quick story that I'll yeah. add. Um, this whole idea of data quality is, is not a made up thing either. Uh, there was a time that I remember where uh, there was a uh, there was a bug in one of the um, Monte Carlo generators that we were using. So this was kind of fake data that we generated for ourselves to study processes in a little bit more like detail than we could do with raw data. And long story short, there was a, a bug in one of these generators and they made tons and tons of practice data without realizing the bug was there. And so then, you know, there's kind of this end result where people are looking at some of these results and saying like, huh, that looks a little bit, that looks a little bit weird. Um, so some people spent a long time trying to figure out what the problem is. Eventually they found it and tracked it back to kind of the very beginning of the data generation process. <laughs> and that was a huge hassle because there was all this data that they had, or, you know, not real data, but like Monte Carlo that they had made, but they were able to figure out which data sets used the the buggy version of the code because for every data set that was in production so to speak you could follow the lineage of that data set back and understand what produced it in the first place and know whether you were working with something that was buggy or not and if you had to make corrections and these kinds of things so it actually can be really important for uh, once you've identified a problem in your data which happens understanding and kind of controlling the the blast radius of of that mistake that last that fifth point is kind of interesting to me because you go from thinking about a data set as the thing that you're working with to these data sets that as the things that you're working with and now that you have all of these data sets and you may have individual people who are interested in different in the data set at different phases of processing you need to have a system to manage all of that stuff. Otherwise, you're just you're going to be spending most of your day um, just wrangling data. You know, and it would be a lot nicer if you could have a system that does that for you. Linear digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.